I invite you to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, three chapters tucked away toward the end of your Old Testament, Zephaniah, and we'll pick up our reading in just a moment in chapter 3. But as a preparation for hearing the Word of the Lord, trying to dive into it and bring its obvious meaning home to our heart, let me ask you a question. Is God generally pleased with you, or is He generally displeased with you? When you think about God, and you think about how God thinks of you, is He a little happier with the person sitting in front of you than He is with the person in your chair? Or is He a little more um, grieved or displeased with you than He is the person to your right or to your left? Is He generally pleased with you, or is He generally displeased with you? Well, for full disclosure, that's a trick question. God doesn't possess general pleasure or displeasure. He doesn't have degrees when it comes to His fundamental disposition toward you. And that's what Zephaniah is really all about. There's some challenging territory in these brief three chapters. There's no doubt about that. But it's not challenging because of the people that we find there, whether that's the enemies of Judah, the Assyrians, or their neighbors to the south, the Egyptians, the Moabites or Ammonites over to the west, we hear about them. That's not the real challenge. The real challenge of the book of Zephaniah is God. Who is He and what is He like? And that's what we want to consider today. What is his disposition toward his people, and what is his disposition toward his enemies? Well, we're in Zephaniah today for those who haven't been with us, because we're just taking a two-year trek right through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, this year focusing on the Old Testament, and next year, Lord willing, the New, one sermon per book, and trying to delve out of the Scriptures what this God is like. Who is He? What is His heart like? And we're looking particularly at the theme of His love, which is latent in every one of these books, particularly His gospel love, which we find clearly manifested in the New Testament in the person and the gospel labors of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this church, not only in a two-year series, but really in our 10-year history, has had one focus. This series of two years is Uh, fitting squarely within that focus. For the first 10 years, we sought to look unto Jesus, to see His brilliance, to see His beauty. Who is the real Jesus? Because Jesus Himself said, don't be surprised, many Christs will arise. Some will say, there He is, no, there He is, no, He's over there. This is the Christ, that's the Christ, and that's our day, isn't it? A lot of people say, Jesus, 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 but we all mean somebody different. Who is He? So for the first 10 years, we sought to see His beauty, His brilliance. And for this second decade of our church's existence, our focus is on His sufficiency. His enoughness. So to see His beauty and to sap out of Him the grace that we need to live for His glory. Well, that's really our focus in the book of Zephaniah, and that's the theme as I trust that you'll see. But back to that question, is He generally pleased or generally displeased with you? It's already been announced a few times today, and there are friends from far and wide who have come for the celebration of this baptism service, which will happen following our lunch today. Is God a little bit more pleased with the candidate for baptism today than He is with you? What is it 
that dictates God's pleasure? Is it the way you feel? Is it what you've done this week? What's the ground of God's disposition toward you? Well, with that in mind, I invite you to Zephaniah chapter 3. Let your eyes fall on verse 14. Hear the word of the living God. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The Word of the Lord. Let's ask again for God's help as we consider this passage and its surrounding context. Father, we ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit now. The same Holy Spirit that inspired these words through the pen of the prophet Zephaniah that rang out through Judah and the surrounding regions and proved true even in Zephaniah's day. And we pray, God, for the grace to see what the Holy Spirit is saying to us here and now through these words, this living and active Word. And that we would see the true and greater fulfillment that's already come in Christ and indeed is yet to come when He returns in all of His resplendent glory And we won't have to have a decade's worth of sermons to try to unpack His beauty and brilliance. For every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him will look upon Him. We ask You, God, to let us see in Jesus what You see in Him. To see through the pages of Zephaniah who He is. What Your heart is like. Meet us, God. There are some who stumbled into this gathering having not even uttered a prayer for help. And there are others who have come with great longing for Your help. For us all, O Lord, would You come and chase our heart and pull back the veil of Your beauty and brilliance and Gospel love and minister deep to us by the authority By the grace of Your Word, help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Zephaniah took place a little over 600 years before Jesus was born. It was during the reign of a good and godly king, Josiah. He was a very young boy when he became king. And about 18 years into his reign as king, a man was cleaning out the clutter in the temple and found the book of the Lord, found the commandments of God. And that man, Hilkiah, brought those to Josiah and said, look what God said. And for the next 13 years, Josiah sought to carry out reforms in the kingdom in accordance with the Word of God. And as wonderful as that is, it was really too late. Two generations prior, under the kingdom of 
Hezekiah, there had been something of real revival in Old Testament Israel and Judah. The people had set their heart to seek the Lord, and God was very gracious to them. But two generations later, when we make it to Josiah, we find that the people had turned again like a pig to the mire, like a dog to its vomit. They had gone right back to their idolatry, their sin, their syncretism. They were taking the gods of all the pagan lands and trying to amalgamate those gods alongside Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they would tip their hat to the true God, but it really wasn't anything that pleased them at all because they had all this plethora of other gods, even physical statue idols littering the land. That's Josiah's day. And like I mentioned, for 13 years after the finding of the book of the law, he sought the to, to bring reform to the land, to return the people back to the God of heaven. But it really was too little too late. They were so entrenched in their sin, they could not hear. And when they heard, they assumed that Zephaniah is talking about everybody else. Of course God's happy with me. Look how religious I am. Zephaniah must be talking about those other people. And isn't it so easy to hear a sermon like that? Oh, I wish so-and-so was there. Oh, I wish such-and-such could have heard that. We do the same thing. And maybe our land doesn't have all these gross images. They were immoral even in their makeup. Littering our land like they had, but we can not even have to think much at all to think about all the idols that do litter our land. But there's a more ugly and grotesque territory, and it's much closer to us. It's our heart. Inside the territory and land of our heart, there's pagan gods and pagan idols, and we bow the knee day after day to these images. And Zephaniah is coming to us today, and the Holy Spirit through Zephaniah, to say there is a God. What is He like? Can He compromise His own character to meet you on your terms? Or must you consecrate yourself to him to meet him on his terms that's really the brass tacks of what Zephaniah is about he might have been the grandson of Hezekiah that godly king two generations earlier we get that from the first verse of the book his message was basically chapter 1 verse 7 the day of the Lord is coming that's a theme that we've run into through the minor prophets the day of the Lord we keep hearing that phrase over and over through the last 13 books of the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. But nobody talks about the day of the Lord more than Zephaniah. Three little chapters. He, he focuses on that theme more than any other prophet. He refers to the day of the Lord more than the other prophets. And this is his main theme. He wants Judah, the southern kingdom, to know that God will judge everyone who rebels against Him. And He will conversely bless those who humble themselves and seek Him on His terms. Now here's one more little bit of background that you need to know about Zephaniah. About 80 years before Zephaniah wrote his book, about 80 years before that, the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to Assyria. Assyria, this godless and pagan nation, came in and plundered Israel, the northern kingdom, and now here's Judah, 80 years later, not picking up on the clue. Those who rebel against the Lord will be destroyed. They even go further in their sin than Israel did. So here's Zephaniah saying, wake up. God has not changed. 
He will deal justly with those who rebel against Him. Well, with that in mind, there are four things I'd like for us to see, and you've got to listen quickly today. The four things I'd like for you to see are the bad news and the good news. That's two, but we're going to look at both of them twice, because Zephaniah does that. In chapter 1, he talks about the bad news. The beginning of chapter 2, he talks about the good news. The middle of chapter 2, he talks again about the very, very, very bad news. It's even worse than chapter 1. And then astonishingly, and even the portion that we read a moment ago, he concludes by speaking about the very, very, very good news. When someone needs to have a serious talk with us, sometimes they begin with that ominous introduction. Would you like to hear the Bad news or the good news first? Well, Zephaniah doesn't ask us the question. He just dives right in with the bad news. Let your eyes fall on chapter 1, verse 2. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Well, I can almost hear the voices of our culture, as you may be able to do as well, responding to a passage like this with the tired old mantra, you Christians, you're so duped. They hear passages like this and they say, you're still following that big tyrant in the sky, that big cosmic killjoy, that angry deity up there who's just sitting and leaning forward on the edge of his throne with a hair trigger ready to smash everybody on a whim. Isn't that what people hear when they hear, I'm going to ruin all the wicked. I'm going to cut off all men from the face of the earth. But we know that those who see God that way, they're sorely mistaken. They actually don't know who he is at all. That's not the case. God's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not a tyrant in the sky just eager and ready to smash people. The question we need to ask before we start making accusations about Him is why? Why does God talk like that? You don't have to look far. Just go to the very next verse and you'll find out. Verse 3. Why would He say, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, including, quote, the wicked? Well, He tells us why in verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow the knee on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him. These people hate God. They don't have anything to do with Him. Why is it that people get so bent when we Christian people talk about God judging those who hate Him? They hate Him. They don't want to have anything to do with Him. Except they want to assign guilt to Him if He judges them for their hatred. That's these people. This is why God's going to judge them in the opening verses. They're idolaters. Through Zephaniah, God's announcing that He's going to come upon this people with His just, just judgment because 
they turn their back on the Lord. Verse 5, they pay homage to the Lord, so they think. They tip their hat to the one true God. And it says, and yet swear by Milcom. M-I-L-C-O-M. Milcom. Well, if you went back to 1 Kings 11, you would know that Milcom is the God of the Ammonites. These people are syncretists, as I said a minute ago. They thought they could just amalgamate the gods of the pagans into some kind of religious soup and stir it all together. Put Israel's God in there too, for sure. We don't want to leave Him out. And like many, they were pluralists in their view of God. Just pick your favorite deity of the day and worship Him. They were functional Hindus. You know, the Hindu religion that's alive and well in South Asia today especially. What do the Hindus believe? Well, Hinduism, in their own terms, in a way that's not caricaturing them or saying something they would disagree with, they would tell you they have 33.5 million deities. The idols litter their land, the temples all over the place. Hinduism is fundamentally a plethora of deities and idols. That's what these people were like. And that's what so many today are like. Jesus can have a big part in your life. He can have a big part in your life. He just can't have all of you. Exclusivity. That's the issue. So Zephaniah 1.5 talks about those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven. What's that about? That's about people worshiping the stars and nature. These are creature worshipers, not creator worshipers. They're rank idolaters. In verse 6, they quote, turn their back from following the Lord. That's not just a momentary lapse into sin. Every Christian faces that. Every Christian would tell you if they're honest with themselves and the Lord, they're the worst sinner they know. Christians aren't sinless people. Christians are repenting sinners. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A non-Christian loves their sin. A, a true Christian is grieved by their sin and turns from it. So when it says they turn their back on the Lord in chapter 1, verse 6, it's not talking about a momentary lapse into sin. It's referring to apostatizing. Making shipwreck, if you will, of the faith, to use a New Testament phrase. These are people who are sons of perdition like Judas. So Zephaniah tells them in chapter 1, verse 7, the day of the Lord is near. Well, that's the bad news. For the wicked, the day of the Lord is near. And the day of the Lord will be unspeakably awful. If I did my best to describe to you the most horrendous and horrific things that I've ever seen, it would pale in comparison to what the day of the Lord will be for God's enemies. But the day of the Lord has a double-edged uh, aspect to it. It is unspeakably awful for the wicked, but it is also unspeakably glorious for the people of God. So in one phrase, the day of the Lord, Zephaniah is holding out both horror and hope. It's really the heart of the message of the whole Bible, not just Zephaniah. The day of the Lord is about the horror of His coming upon His enemies and the hope of His coming for His people. Is that not the core of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? The bad news is that sin is so repulsive to this God, the real God, that He must do to those 
who love their sin, what His Son endured at Calvary. That's what they must suffer. They must endure what He endured. And at the same time, does not the Gospel of Jesus Christ hold out the good news that the Gospel is what God's Son endured at Calvary so that it would not be endured by those whose hope is in Him? In His holiness, He became sin for us. And He died to set us free from our sin. The bad news, God will judge His enemies. But there's good news. Chapter 2, let your eyes fall on verses 1-3. through three. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame before the decree takes effect. The day passes like the chaff before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Verse 3, look at this. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Do you hear what God's saying? There's an avenue of hope. There's an avenue of rescue. We've all rebelled against Him. The territory of our heart is all littered with idols. But would God be merciful to any? And if so, how? The good news is yes. Seek the Lord. Humble yourself. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. In verse 3 of chapter 2, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. Seek him. Or to quote the verse, seek righteousness. Seek to be right in the eyes of God. To be cloaked with the asbestos cover of the righteousness of Christ so that when His judgment comes for you, you're spared from what is justly yours. Perhaps God is so glorious that it's possible That some, to quote verse 3, will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Do you hear that? Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Where would you hide? From the just anger of the Lord against sinners. You would hide in God. You would hide in His righteousness. You would humble yourself. You would turn from your own self-centeredness and trying to make yourself like our first parents, Adam and Eve, God's judge. No, you're not going to give the commands and the dictates. I am. No, you're not going to tell me how you are to be worshipped and adored. I will tell you. Humility is fundamentally not taking sides with God against what you've done. You don't need to be saved from your bad deeds only. You definitely need to be saved from your bad deeds. You have to be saved from your best deeds. You have to be saved from all your so-called righteousness. Telling God what it will look like for you to worship Him. You have to take sides with God not only against your sin, but against yourself. That's humility. That's what seeking righteousness is. It's saying, I need a righteousness that comes from outside of me, not from within me. If I'm going to be saved, it will not be because of my good behavior. It will be because of God's mercy and Him granting to me something that I do not possess. Seek righteousness. That's what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The kingdom of God is His kingdom. He's the king. 
He gives all the commands. He sets all the decrees. He devises all the dictates. He's the king. And Jesus said, seek that. Go after the truth that you're not the king. You're not in control. You humble yourself under his reign, but not only that, and his righteousness. That's what Zephaniah is talking about. I want your rule and your reign, and I want your righteousness as my own. That's the good news. Our unrighteousness must be dealt with. Only in Christ can we be counted righteous in God's sight. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's what Zephaniah is about. The great coming of Christ in His first advent that we're now being very mindful of in this season for obvious reason. That's what it's all about. It's about the great exchange that the righteous God who was offended by our sin stepped into the sin-torn world in order to accomplish the great exchange that He would take our sin and we would be granted His righteousness. That's 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin on our behalf. What a description of the Son of God. Became sin. Not a sinner, sin. So God treated Him like our sin deserved. Because that's what He became. And the reason He's an adequate Savior and nobody else is, is because He's perfectly righteous. He never rebelled. So He became sin for us so that in Him, there's where you hide, we may become the righteousness of God. That's what chapter 2, verse 1-3 through is really ultimately about. Humbling ourselves and seeking God. And a remnant will do that. God will save a remnant. That's what those verses are about. Well, there's the bad news and the good news. And since we've already said it in that form, we can now say again briefly, let's look again at the bad news. But not just bad news. Let's actually hear it. Let's talk about the very, very bad news. How bad is the bad news? You can't know what the good news is unless you know what the bad news is. God is gracious That's good news. He will preserve and save a faithful remnant. That's good news. But just like all the people in our city who who litter in front of my house two blocks from here with all their stubs from the lottery that they buy at the gas station two blocks that way, we all think we're going to win. We're all part of the remnant, are we? How bad is this bad news? Are we all in the remnant? Is everybody going to heaven when they die? We all going to be saved? Oh, the news is so bad. The reason that I say Zephaniah goes from bad news to very bad news is because he expands the scope of God's judgment to become more exhaustive in the minds of his reader. You're not thinking badly enough about the bad news. It's worse than you think. It's way worse than you think. And it's because God is such a God that the news is so bad. He cannot compromise His character. He will not. God elaborates on the meaning of how far His judgment will run. And He does truly mean that only a remnant, a faithful remnant, that seek Him and His righteousness will live. 
This is how bad the bad news is. Let me just say it in brief and you can skim the passages. Following the good news of Zephaniah 2, 1-3, the remnant that seeks the Lord, Zephaniah 2, 4-15 is very, very, very bad. God wasn't kidding when He said He would destroy His enemies. He's the same today. Chapter 2, verses 4-7, through He's going to destroy the Philistines. One little sentence, boom, they're gone. Verse 5 tells us that Canaan, that's the land of the Philistines, I will destroy so that there will be no inhabitant. Verse 4, we get places among the Canaanite Philistines. That is Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. Just to put that in your mind, that'd be like me saying Memphis, Nashville, Knoxville, Raleigh, straight across, everywhere in between, 100% of the people gone, zero survivors, all of them perishing. Like when Noah built a big boat and the whole world perished, minus eight people, that's what we're talking about, but God's not finished. It's way worse than that. Chapter 2, verse 11, Moab and Ammon. That's the coastlands in verse 11, the Moabites and the Ammonites. What's God going to do to them? Starve all the gods of the earth. You hear the way he talks? He's the living God. They're inanimate objects. He's going to starve them to death. Do you know what pagan worshipers think? And we think the same way. Pagan worshipers think if you don't feed your God, He'll be mad at you. That's why all the tribes in these third world countries dance for the rain. They think the rain God is mad at them. How many people treat the true God like that? They're not even thinking of the true God. He's not appeased by our performance. He doesn't deal with us on the basis of our righteous deeds or lack thereof. There's a different ground. So Moab and Ammon, they've got to go. Verse 12 of chapter 2, Cush, that's the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, they've got to go. You, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. So now he's encircled Judah. When he finally gets to verse 15, verses 13 to 15 is about Assyria. He will, quote, verse 13, make Nineveh a desolation. The most powerful nation on earth. Flick them off the planet. They will be, quote, a desolation. I just read an article about Chernobyl in the Ukraine, which on April 27, 1986, 14,000 people had to be evacuated in 30 hours because of the big nuclear disaster that some of you are aware of. You should go look at pictures of Chernobyl today. That's what God's describing. Assyria... Cush, Moab, Ammon, Philistines, Canaanites, gone. The news is very, very, very bad. But don't miss that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, he's got one more audience. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, you skim it. Jerusalem. 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 The Bible's so clear. Read the prophet Ezekiel. Judgment always begins with the people of God. Ezekiel chapter 9, those who do not weep and wail and mourn for their sin, they'll be wiped out. The New Testament has the same record. The Apostle Peter said, now it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not believe the Gospel? That's chapter 3, verses 1-8. through eight. Zephaniah is saying what the New Testament writers warn us about. The nations in Zephaniah's day, including Judah, including the choice city, Jerusalem, 
They are in grave danger of the judgment of God because they had presumed upon him. They love their sin. Zephaniah is so relevant for us today, is it not? Is it not the pages of the New Testament that say to us precisely what Zephaniah is talking about? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's zero excuse for idolatry. We're all guilty. People who are filled with unrighteousness, I'm quoting the New Testament, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossiping, slandering, hating God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, although they know the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. That's the New Testament. That's what Zephaniah is talking about. The news is way worse. If you are not in Christ and you understood the day of the Lord, you would be hanging on to the wall right now, begging God not to let you slip into the pit of destruction. That's what Zephaniah is talking about. The news is worse than you imagine. Do not skip through life any longer thinking you're safe in your sin outside of the security of the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you going to tell Him how good you've been? How many times you've been to church? How many times you read your Bible? Got baptized? What are you going to tell Him? The Lord Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? In Your name cast out demons? In Your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. Well, the news is very, very bad. We're ready for the very, very good news, Lord willing. Chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Our final point. The very, very good news. Verse 12 of chapter 3. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people. They will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Is this referring to a people who are a little bit better than others? Remember, I asked you at the very beginning, is God generally pleased with you or generally displeased with you? Does He like the person sitting in front or beside you a little better than He likes you? On what ground does God's disposition toward you rest? Take a close look. In verse 12, at the end, these people are taking refuge in the name of the Lord. They are humble. They are lowly. But take a closer look at who gets all the credit for cultivating the godwardness of this remnant. Who's the one working not outside of them, but in them? Who's the one provoking them and wooing them to hide themselves in the name of the Lord? Verse 13. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. He gets all the glory for making this people. We could say remaking if you look at the deconstruction of chapter 1 where like Genesis, the whole creation is in disorder. So also Zephaniah chapter 1, it's all in disarray. And now there's a rebuilding just like Christ will one day do. A new heavens and a new earth. Here's God getting all the glory for His redeeming work. If you look carefully at verse 17, this is where we will conclude. This is a verse that deserves to be memorized and meditated upon. It deserves to become your song in the night. 
It deserves to become the kind of verse that you meditate on for the next month or two or three on your commute back and forth to work. It, become, it deserves to become your prayer until you can dare to believe it. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. ESV Study Bible says of this verse, this verse remarkably adds that God Himself will rejoice over you with gladness. Indicating that when God's people seek Him and follow Him, verse 12 and 13, and rejoice in Him and trust Him, verse 14 to 16. Now look at God. Don't look at me. Look at God. If you seek Him and follow Him, if you rejoice and trust in Him, Though the world around you, living in their sin and loving it, racing one another to hell, even the religious crowd in Jerusalem has started to compromise and amalgamate, bring in other idols, do it their way versus God's way. All that hell is breaking loose around you. If you will seek Him and follow Him, verse 12 and 13, if you will rejoice in Him and you will trust Him, verse 14 to 16, then God will personally delight in you. He's not aloof. He's not way over there. He's not generally displeased with you. He's not at all displeased with you. He's not generally pleased with you. He is totally pleased with you. He's not emotionless and content. He has zero buyer's remorse for purchasing you at great cost to himself through the blood of his son. He bursts forth, the ESV says, in joyful divine celebration. That's what the word exult means in this verse. Over you. Satan knows your name and calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin and calls you by your name. He loves you. He's for you. There's a torrent coming at you that's stronger than the current under the Mississippi River that would sweep us all away to our death. The torrent that flows in Ezekiel from the throne of God. If you step your big toe into the river of His love for you at the cross of Calvary, if you wade to your ankles, your knees, your waist, your chest, until over your head you are covered in the love of Christ, this is God's disposition toward you. That little phrase in the middle of verse 17. He will be quiet in His love. Quiet in His love. Charles Spurgeon thought, he wasn't sure, he admits that. But he thought that this means He's never going to bring up your wrong. He's quiet about it. He loves you. Christ has paid for your guilt. Therefore, God is quiet in His love. No accusations, no shame. Only acceptance. Only reception. God only all for you all the time. No condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. So Spurgeon said it this way, O oh, glorious silence. He will be silent in His love. So I am inclined to believe it will be at the last great day when the book shall be open, Christ 
will read out the sins of the wicked recorded against them, but as for the sins of His people, He will be quiet in His love. I sometimes think that it will be so, though I cannot speak with authority. No, He will say, upon you be the curse. You who lived and died without washing in My blood, in the fountain that was open for sin and for all your uncleanness. But for these My people, They've had their sin blotted out. White as snow. I will not read what is already obliterated. I will rather be silent in my love. That's God's disposition toward His people. Look at Him. Verse 15, He's in your midst. Verse 17, He's in your midst. This is the story of the Bible. You touch the inferno of the one true God in your sin and you are doomed. You touch the inferno of the one true God in humility and repentance and you are purified from the inside out. God in the midst of His people. His people who all their lives are surrounded by sin without, indeed sin within. Surrounded by rebellious nations just like Judah and Jerusalem. Even the religious crowd. Rank idolatry. Running rampant in the land. It's in the midst of those people that God preserves and saves a faithful remnant. How does He do it? I'm glad you asked. And I close. Verse 9 of chapter 3. I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him shoulder to shoulder. Purified lips. It's a picture of the refiner's fire. He doesn't destroy you and make an altogether totally new version of you. He purifies you. He remakes you. Yes, a new creature. But just like He took the dust of the ground and made a man, He takes the filth of a sinner and makes a beautiful Christ follower. He purifies you with the refiner's fire. How does He do it? Verse 9, calling on the name of the Lord. No more hope in here. All your hopes out there. God, help me. God, come and save me. God, forgive me. I own my sin. I don't excuse it anymore. I lean into the purifying work of Christ. He's all my hope. His blood, His righteousness, that purifying gospel fire. And did you notice His name in this verse? His description of Himself. A victorious warrior, verse 17. In your midst. That's Emmanuel, God with us. Does this not sound like the cross of Jesus Christ to you? Does this not sound like the King of the hosts of the armies of the Lord stepping out of the portals of heaven, dismounting His throne, unsheathing His righteous right arm, stepping into this sin-torn world. Can you see Christ? Yes, meek and lowly. Yes, man of sorrows. Yes, weak in so many ways. But can you also see Him clad from head to toe in the warrior's guild? Can you see Him go into the cross to own his people to destroy Satan, Hebrews chapter 2, 
to arrest for himself forever his prized possession, make them trophies of his grace. Can you hear him sing at the cross? Hebrews 12.2 For the joy that is set before me, I endure the cross. That's Zephaniah 3.17. Rejoicing. Can you hear him being quiet in his love? Not making any response to those that would accuse and revile him. He opened not his mouth, but kept, quote, entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Can you hear him risen and reigning and now rejoicing over you? Having dismounted the cross in his death, being laid in a borrowed tomb, dead and buried, and three days later, emerging from the grave, an empty tomb, now the conquering king of the universe who can say, I hold all authority in heaven and earth in my hands. I'm the new king. I'm the true king. And I will forever preserve and save my people. Stop and listen someday to the song of your Savior. Stop and listen someday to what it sounds like for Him to rejoice, for Him to sing, for Him to exult. And if you only hear it sometimes, you need to listen a little more closely. Because His disposition toward you, if you're in Christ, is not generally pleased. It's not generally displeased. It is as much as He is affectionate toward the Son of God, and as much as He approves the Lord Jesus Christ, so also His affections are toward you, and so also is His approval all yours. That's the promise of the Gospel, and those are the people that God will preserve. Join me as we pray together and ask for God's help to apply.